It's a 9-volt battery on my stand. Don't think I need it. Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. So my name is Peter Carlson. Uh, I'm the worship leader here at Hiawatha, like Dan just said. So usually I'm, I'm doing the music, and this week um, I get to preach. I'm also on the overseer team, so um, we do this from time to time. And, uh, and Dan's right. Our pastor, Chris Walker, who's, uh, who's off today, he's not in the building actually, laid out a few dates for me and said, you know, one of these dates uh, I'd like you to preach, and I picked this one, and then I looked at the passage for this date and like, well, that's going to be a sort of complicated one, isn't it? But, uh, but here we are. So, um, and, uh, and I'm really excited about preaching this passage, actually. So it's going to be good, and it always is when you're talking about Scripture. So right now we are in a sermon series on the book of Acts. So we're going to be hearing more from the book of Acts today. Um, this is only the third sermon in the series. So if you're, uh, if you're brand new coming to Hiawatha today, um, you're coming at a good time because you're getting in on the ground floor of what's going to be a sermon series that lasts for basically a little more than a full calendar year. So we're just scratching the surface on this book of Acts. It's the, uh, it's the fourth book, or the fifth book of the New Testament. And um, it's written by a guy named Luke, who also wrote one of the, one of the Gospels. That's, those are the, the first four books of the New Testament, which tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. He wrote one of those, and then he kept going. Basically, he wrote a sequel, and it's called Acts. And our sermon series is called uh, The Church is Born, because this is this is the story of what happened after Jesus died and was resurrected and then, like we recapped last week, uh, ascended back up into heaven and the disciples are left and all the things that they're going to do, all the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do through them um, in, the, uh, in the years after all of that took place. So just a little bit about this guy named Luke who wrote the book. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He's, uh, he's not a Jew um, and actually he was trained as a physician. He was a doctor and kind of got pulled into this story and into the lives of some of these people. And if you read the Gospel of Luke early on, the first few verses he's, he's writing and he says, a lot of people have, uh, have written down these things that I'm going to write down as well um, and have done a good job, but I felt compelled to write as well. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is working through him. He says, I, I felt compelled to write an orderly account of everything that happened um, all the way through beginning to end, which I think is cool because... He's, he's a, he has the mind of a doctor or maybe a scientist and says, um, some of those people wrote all this stuff down, but they categorized it by topic and it wasn't quite in the right order. And I just think things need to be really orderly and this is what happened. And then number two happened, number three happened, like some kind of a science experiment. And so he says, I, I want to do it right. I want to do it beginning to end. And he takes on kind of this role of a journalist almost, where he's involved in these stories almost like he's an embedded journalist and he's talking to the people that were there from the beginning to the end, and he's interviewing them, and he's writing this stuff down, and he'll go back and write out this whole story uh, of what happened. And one of the reasons we know that, which I think is one of the, one of the coolest things about the Gospel of Luke, his, his first book, is after he talks about how Jesus was born, all the things that went into that, and all of these amazingly, the angels appeared to these shepherds, the shepherds show up, there's a stable where he's born, and uh, his mother was a virgin, and all these things. After he gets done talking about all of that, he's, he has this little, this little verse, I don't have it on the screen or anything, but he has this little verse where he says, but Mary, Jesus' mother, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then he goes on with it. It's like, that's a really interesting little thing to throw in there. Um, but it seems like that's evidence that he actually like, interviewed Mary. It was like, so after all of that stuff and like these random shepherds show up and, and all of these things, like, how did, you, how did you feel? Like, it's a good journalism question. And she's like, well, I just kind of, I just kept all of that in my heart and I pondered it. I, I've thought about it for years. I've just, it's a treasured time in my life. And, and, um, and he writes that down and puts it in there. And it's, it's fantastic. So when we're reading the book of Acts, just think about it like it's a journalist who's been writing all this stuff down, talking to the people who were there. And then he himself is there for a portion of it as well. So setting the stage for what we're going to do today Last week, we talked about how Jesus ascended. He, he met with his disciples one last time on this mountaintop, gave them some final instructions, told them that he wants them to go to uh, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth and tell the story about what has, what has happened and what he has done. But for now, he says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and just wait, just wait there. And Chris talked a lot about that last week, how like, that's a really inspiring message. Like, are you guys ready? Are you guys ready? So wait. And that's all it is, you know. And so that's what happened last week. 
So this week, they're waiting. That's kind of where we are. We're in this sort of waiting room where the disciples and all of Jesus' followers are just sitting in Jerusalem, and they're waiting for what's coming next. And Jesus has said, I'm going to send you the, the, a helper. The Holy Spirit is a helper to you, and I want you to wait in Jerusalem until that happens. So that's where we are today. They're going to be sitting around. They're going to be waiting. We're going to see what that looks like. They have some business that they want to attend to while they're waiting. And then also some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today has to do with one of the people who's not there with them in the room, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. So I'm going to title this sermon, The Twelfth Man. And that's going to make sense to us in just a little bit. We're going to talk about this, this empty chair idea of someone who's not in the room with them at this time. So we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 1. It's verses 12 through 26 today. So we're going to read it in full to begin. Um, it didn't fit on the sermon insert, so if you're looking there, uh, you won't find it. But you can grab your pew Bible if you like. It's on page 909 or just grab an app on your phone or whatever or read it off the screen with me as we go. So we're going to read the whole, the whole passage, and then we'll, we'll circle back and get started. So starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, among the brothers. The company of persons was about, you know, all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And now there's this parenthetical from Luke. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now back to Peter speaking again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there we are. A lot of interesting stuff, a lot of complicated stuff that we're going to need to talk through today. Um, but there's a lot of good news in this passage that we're going to we're going to uncover. So, to begin again, they're waiting. They're just sitting and waiting in Jerusalem, not sure what's coming next, but they're waiting. This is a picture that that I found of a room that's traditionally thought to be maybe this room where they were doing their meeting. Um, it's possible that this upper room was also the same room where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples before his crucifixion, but not necessarily. Um, but it's a room that probably looked something like this. And this is a literal room that's in Jerusalem today that people travel to and look at. Um, maybe it's the exact same room. Maybe it's not. No one's quite sure. But probably something like this. Architecturally and space-wise, probably something like this. Um, and it's a rented space. So these these people don't own it, but they've, they've identified a room that will fit 120 people because that's about the size of their group right now. And it's kind of like the very, very first church. Just like today, these churches have to rent space at first sometimes. They've found this room. It's about the right size. It can, can deal with the number of people that are coming to this church. And they're, they're meeting there and uh, probably gathering there daily and then going back and doing working or whatever they have and then coming back and waiting then going home, then coming back and waiting some more, and just making this their, their central meeting place. And it's, it's cool to see just kind of the, 
the nuts and bolts of what this time was like. Of you know, They're not really sure what they're supposed to be doing other than just stay in Jerusalem and wait. That's the instruction that they've been given by Jesus. And like I said, there are about 120 of them. So it's, you know, it's a fairly large group. Um, the, the original disciples, the 11 that are left, are part of this group. But there's others as well. Um, there are women in this group, it says. So there, there are people who have been following Jesus who are women, including um, Jesus' mother, Mary, is part of this group, which is, which is pretty cool. And she would probably be, you know, in her 50s or something by this time. Um, and other women as well. We've seen some of Jesus' female followers is in, the, in the Gospels. They're still around. Uh, it also says that Jesus' brothers are there. So if that's news to you, Jesus was not an only child, but his mother was, was a virgin when he was born, so he's the oldest of Mary's children. It's possible that Joseph had other children or something if he was a widower. We, don't, we just don't know. Um, but it does say that Jesus' brothers are there, which is, which is interesting. So they're, they're, part, they're part of this group. And uh, you have to imagine the mood in this room at this time is, is just anxious, right? Because they're waiting, they don't know what's going on, really. Um, and there are probably some positive anxiousness and some negative anxiousness as well. In the positive sense, they're excited because they've been promised the Holy Spirit. They don't fully understand what that means, but it sounds exciting, and they, they're anticipating when that will happen, even if they don't fully know what that means. So there's like this kind of nervous excitement, and maybe every time some new person walks in the room, they're like, oh, oh, no, it's just, it's just justice. Um, who knows? You know, just like this, this tension and anxiety uh, in a positive sense, because they're excited, but also probably some negative anxiety too, right? Because there, there's some worry. There has been in the past. We've seen that from some of the other accounts where the disciples are sort of gathered together in secret with the doors locked because they sort of worry that they're going to be arrested and executed like Jesus was. So there might still be some of that going on, even though it's been six weeks or so since, since uh, Jesus rose. But also just worried and anxious because there are these stories circulating amongst Jerusalem about what happened to one of their own named Judas and all of the, the grisly details there. And that's probably being talked about amongst the group. And it says, it says in that passage there that this, this news has spread throughout Jerusalem. So it's kind of just in the air. This rumor mill is cranking up. Like, did you hear about that guy in that field? And well, I don't even, you know, we're going to talk about more about Judas in a little bit. But this is kind of the mood that's in the room. And so in the midst of all of this, Luke says that this group of 120 people, in verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So this is how they're spending their time while they wait for God in the midst of all of this anxiety. They're together. They're unified. They're of one accord. They're focused on, on what they're supposed to be doing. And they're praying. So those three things. That's, this is how Christians wait for God. Together with other believers, unified, focused, and in prayer. And we find out in a, in a second here when Peter stands up that they've also been sort of searching the scriptures and talking through uh, the Bible with each other. And that's how they're spending their time. Just sort of waiting around. So that's kind of the scene for all of this is, the, is all these people, large group of people sitting around in this room waiting and praying and talking. And then a little bit of a, a business meeting breaks out uh, in, in this church, this little tiny baby church, when Peter stands up. So let's read 15 through 17 here as, as Peter stands up. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, in this ministry. So Peter's always been kind of one of the more outspoken disciples all, all along. He's been the, the wordy one, the, the sort of um, really sure of himself guy that will, that will stand up and make a scene in, in different circumstances. And he's, he's sort of assumed the, the speaker role from this, for this group, especially of the, of the 11 original disciples who are there. And Peter knows what's being talked about in this room. He knows that all of these people are sort of hashing out and regurgitating these rumors about Judas and all the things that happened and are getting really um, anxious and probably upset because Judas was a good friend of theirs for, for a number of years. And so Peter feels compelled to stand up and, and sort of address this with the group. 
and give a little bit of encouragement. And he's, he's saying, look, Judas isn't here. Yes, his chair is empty. But all of this had to take place. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. And it's, this empty chair idea is really interesting because Luke hammers it home too earlier on when he says, you know, everybody was there. And then he names all the 11 disciples as if it, you didn't know he's not going to name Judas. Although awkwardly, there's another disciple named Judas. So he has to say, well, Judas was there, but not that Judas. It's this other Judas. So just so, so you're clear, there's two Jameses also. But it had to be tough for that Judas after all of this went down, right? But I'm not that Judas. I'm the other one. Um, so Judas is not there. And Peter realizes that something needs to be done about this, that this empty chair can't stay empty, that there's a point to having 12 disciples, which, which we're going to get to in a second. But he stands up and starts talking about this, and he says that the Scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David talking about Judas. And then he brings up these two psalms from David. So here's what he, he quotes Psalm 69, 25, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So Peter's saying that verse is actually about Judas. And then Psalm 109, 8 says, Let another take his office. Peter says that's also about Judas. So Peter is saying the Holy Spirit spoke these things through David, and David is writing them out of his own circumstances that are happening. But Peter is saying he wrote these out of his own circumstances, but they're actually about Judas and about his betrayal of Jesus Christ that happened a few weeks ago. And what's really cool is that Peter is starting to see the Old Testament as Jesus taught the Old Testament during his ministry. Jesus taught that the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and all of those books, those things were written concerning Jesus. And he kept talking about that to his disciples over and over and over again and teaching them. And there's a great picture of after Jesus rose that he met two of his followers on a road and they didn't recognize him and they sort of are talking about this stuff. And then Jesus explains all of the Old Testament to them and how it, how it points to Jesus. And they're like, oh, wow, I, wow, that's really fantastic. And then he's like, and I'm Jesus, goodbye. And then they're like, whoa. Um, and so all of this stuff is really fantastic to see Peter standing up and saying, you know what? It's all making sense. I didn't understand all of it when Jesus was here. But now, when I think back to these Psalms, these are about Jesus. These are about Judas. This was all part of the plan. And he says this great phrase, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. God's plan had to be carried out. And that God is sovereign over all of the horrors that they have seen six weeks ago when all of this, all of this stuff went down. And God is in control. So by pointing to the scriptures and by using that phrase, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, this is what Peter's essentially saying to, to the group of people. Look, God's plan of salvation was set. None of this stuff that happened was by chance. All of it was part of the plan. None of it was a surprise to God where he had to make a plan B. This was always plan A. Yes, even Judas's betrayal and death that we're all really anxious and really disturbed by hearing the news of, was part of that plan. That the Holy Spirit gave the word to David centuries ago about it, wrote it down so that we know it was part of the plan and not some sort of mistake or aberration. And now, God has a plan for what's next, right? That's the next piece that Peter's going to bring up. Because that second psalm says another should take his office, another should take his place. That God has a plan for that too. And so he's encouraging the group. He's saying to trust God. Yes, this is really, really difficult stuff for us to reckon with, but we should be encouraged and trust that God has a plan because he has all along and it has come to fruition. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. God's plan had to be carried out because it's God's plan. So Peter is saying we should replace Judas. We should have a 12th man in this group. We should restore this special number of 12 disciples. Peter's saying Jesus chose 12 disciples for a reason. 
and we're incomplete right now. We only have 11 of us here. And Jesus said that 12 disciples meant something, that they had special roles. In, in Matthew 19, and he says this, this a couple places, but in Matthew 19, here's something that Jesus said to them when he, was, when he was with them. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, that's him referring to himself, when Jesus will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying, the reason that I picked 12 disciples wasn't because I found 12 guys who could do it and that was it. I would have liked to have 20, but there just only were 12. Jesus is saying, I, I selected 12 disciples for a reason, and it's referring to the fact that the nation of Israel had 12 tribes. The nation of Israel was descended from a family of 12 brothers, and so there were 12 tribes. And Jesus is saying, I'm picking 12 because 12 is a special number. It's showing a completeness, and it's showing a picture of the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. So here, Jesus is pointing out there's a, there's a future role for these 12 disciples that involves the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the present time now, not talking about the future, you know, the new heavens and new earth when the disciples will have these literal roles of 12 thrones and nation of Israel and all of that stuff, which we don't, we don't have time to dive too deep into. But right now, the church itself, this tiny, tiny 120-person church in a rented space in Jerusalem, is the seed of the greater church, worldwide church, which is the new Israel, the New Testament says. And so having these 12 disciples in their 12 specific roles and the special number, they basically need to be the stem cells of this new Israel that's going to grow and become this worldwide church at large, and we're going to track that through the book of Acts all the way to the, to the end of the book. So Peter realizes, you know, 12 is, is special. 12 is the number that Jesus wants to have. There are special roles, and we want to, we want to live up to that. So we have to decide who the 12th guy is going to be. How are we going to do that? So here's what he says. Peter continues on and says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We talked about that word witness last week, how that's, that's an important piece. Peter is saying, here's the criteria. We don't want someone who came in late to, the, to this. We don't want someone who joined our group yesterday but is really great at speaking or something. We want someone who witnessed all of it like we all did. So this is an interesting insight because it wasn't just this, the 12 who were with Jesus this whole time. There were other people around. And many times Jesus would just take the 12 and kind of keep them separate and do some special teaching with them. But there's a group of people who's been following Jesus this whole time too who was not part of that. So they have a pool to draw from. So anyway, he says they have to have been with us the whole time. They have to be a witness to the resurrection. So then in verse 23, it says, so they, they look at their group. They put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, the three-named guy, and then Matthias, the one-named guy. And the group prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they flip a coin. <laughs> they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, so he took the chair. He was numbered with the 11. So this is, this is one of these really strange parts of the Bible where you don't really expect that it's leading up to this. You, you almost expect like a light from heaven shone on Matthias and they're like, ah, yes, Matthias. And instead it was sort of like, well, I guess we put their names in a hat and draw one. That's about all we got to do. And then they just, they just draw Matthias and Joseph's like, okay, it's going to be Matthias. <laughs> it seems sort of random, but... Um, you have to keep in mind that this, is, this, this waiting room time is really this strange in-between period in church history where, you know, Jesus picked the 12 disciples, hand-picked them, like walked up to them and said, you are going to follow me when they were like fishing. 
and he's not there. He's in heaven. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help you, but the Holy Spirit's not there yet. So they're kind of in this weird time of like, well, how do we do this? And here's how they do it. They seek the scriptures. Like I said, they, they, read, the, they read the Psalms. They, they talk about why there needs to be someone. They, they pick two guys responsibly from who's, who's there according to the criteria that they, that they feel they've been given. They have to have seen Jesus die, seen him be resurrected, resurrected, literal witnesses in every sense of the word. But when it comes to that point and they feel like we have you know, two, two choices here, at that point they pray. And they say, you Lord who know the hearts of all, you show us which one of these two you have chosen to take this place. So they still want God to be the decider. They, did, they decided not to do a vote from the group. They decided to go straight to God and say, we want you to select from these two which one it's supposed to be. So that's showing a measure of trust, right? To say, Lord, I think the only good option we have here is this casting lots thing, this ancient centuries-old way to decide things which is basically like drawing a name out of a hat, we think, um, is really the only way we have. So they pray and they say, God, we're going to do this, but we want you to use this crude, kind of silly means to show us who you are picking so that we aren't doing the picking because we don't think that we're supposed to do that at this point. And the lot fell on Matthias, and so he's, he's the guy. It seems strange, but this is, this is an act of trust by the disciples and by this group of people to say we want God to be the one who is deciding. We want God's will to be done. So, with that being said, does that mean that we should be casting lots for all these decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis? Like pray and say, God, I'm going to flip this coin and then I want you to work through this coin to tell me if I should take this job or this job. Should we be doing that? Or, as I read this week online, should churches be choosing their overseers by casting lots and not by voting from the congregation? And I think the answer to that is no, because of the nature of this special time that they're in right now. The Holy Spirit hasn't indwelled them, and when that happens, things change. We're going to see that next week. When the Holy Spirit comes, things change for the disciples. Um, But right now, they don't have that. But we as Christians today do have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can search the will of God through the entirety of the scriptures. Again, these guys don't have the New Testament yet either. We can do that. We can pray. We can talk amongst the body of believers. We can ask God to reveal his will to us through those things. Those are the main channels that God speaks to us today. It's through the scripture, through the gospel itself in the scripture, and through counsel from other believers in the church and through prayer. But all that being said, if you're like me and you've found yourself in a situation where you're like, I just... I've done all that stuff and I still don't really feel like one of these two options is obvious to me. It's not a sin to flip a coin. Trust God. Trust God, seek his will, and trust that he will direct you. So that's what they do. The funny thing is, we don't hear anything from Matthias for the rest of the Bible. So there is that. But he had a really special role and he was the 12th man. And and God selected him even through the, the crude, sort of clumsy means of, of casting lots. But now let's circle back and talk about Judas. Because that's the other piece to this passage, is sort of closing, closing the chapter on this character of Judas and, uh, and all that went into his life and his, and his death. So again, there's this empty chair. That's what kind of prompts this whole thing. Everybody's a little bit anxious that Judas isn't there. These stories are circulating. If you don't know anything about who Judas was, I've touched on it a little bit. I'll just give you the cliff notes. He was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Judas is the one who, when they got to Jerusalem, betrayed Jesus, who went to the, to the chief priests and the religious leaders who were looking for a way to kill Jesus. And Judas went and offered them an inside man, basically, and asked for money. They gave him 30 pieces of silver. And they made this agreement that he would lead the Roman guards when the time came, when, when there was an opportune moment, when Jesus wasn't surrounded by a huge crowd of people, that Judas would lead the Roman guards to where Jesus was and that he would point out which one he was because obviously, 
the Roman guards aren't going to know one Jewish guy from another necessarily. So Judas hatched this plan. He, uh, the night um, before Jesus was crucified, he led the Roman soldiers and some re- religious leaders to the garden where Jesus and the disciples were praying. So it's dark out, and Judas approaches the group, and he goes straight to Jesus and kisses him, which is the signal. The one that Judas kisses is the guy you're supposed to grab, not any of the other guys. So Judas does that, and Jesus is arrested, and that puts into motion all of those events where he's tried throughout the night. They're pulling judges out of bed to try to make these decisions about how to execute him, and then into the next day on Friday is when he's finally um, crucified. So Judas is the one who gets all of that stuff started. So when Luke digresses in the midst of this discourse about this meeting that's going on and says, oh yeah, Judas, we should probably go back and I'll tell you what happened to him and why all of, all of this, all of this thing, all these things need to be decided in this room. So that's when he gives us this little parenthetical, almost this footnote, and says, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Every time I read it, I just think, gushed. That's the word we're going to use here, is gushed. That's so intense. I was going to say visceral, but it's literally visceral. Gushed out. So, we should probably address the fact that the timeline for these events is a little bit tricky, scripturally, because this is related a little bit in the book of Matthew as well. Matthew 27 talks about the end of Judas's life and says this, for after, after all of this betrayal and stuff happened, it says, Matthew 27, verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money that they paid. But we'll forget that. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So there's a different, slightly different account here in Matthew But there are similarities, right? We find out about the field of blood. We find out that Judas died. We find out that um, he actually hung himself. And most people think that these stories can line up fairly well by saying, yeah, Judas, Judas changed his mind and went back, threw the money in. So by proxy, he bought the field, but maybe the chief priests are the ones who actually paid for it. Um, In any case, that is the field where he died. And it's likely that he hung himself and the rope broke and the gushing and the other things that followed that um, also happened. But it's cool in Matthew too that again, through all of these terrible things that Matthew just related before this, it says, then was fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled. Again, this wasn't a surprise and Matthew's pointing it out, not from Psalms, but from Jeremiah, which literally lays out like the number of pieces of silver and all of these things and talks about a field and like the scriptures are being fulfilled through these things. So Judas goes to this field and he hangs himself and um, it seems that the rope broke and he fell. And the story was circulated through the rumor mill in Jerusalem. There's probably, that's probably part of the reason why this is a little bit convoluted is that, you know, someone's like, I heard Judas bought a field, and then he hung himself there. And other people are like, he didn't buy the field. The chief priest bought the field. He just went to the field. And, you know, it's just, that's how rumors work. But this, is, this seems to be the end of the road for, for Judas. And it's, it's an ugly one. It's a, it's a very ugly one. It's one that's not pleasant to read over and over again on a Sunday morning. But the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and this is what happened. But aside from Judas, there's actually another character in, in this story and in the, the ministry of Jesus. And 
the fingerprints of this character are all over this stuff when we, when we read about Judas's suicide and we read about his betrayal. Um, and this character is kind of in the, in the background in these passages, but he's in the foreground in other passages. And that, that's the character of Satan. Satan has a role in these things. And we're going to spend some of the rest of our time here looking at what is Satan doing during this time and how does Satan play into what happened with Judas and how Judas met his end um, and uncover a little bit of what Satan was doing during the ministry of Jesus as well. We need to make sense of Satan's dealings here. In Luke chapter 4, we see that early on in Jesus' ministry, after he's baptized, he goes out into the desert for a period of 40 days, and Satan meets him there. And this is, the, this is the story where Satan tempts Jesus in a number of different ways, tempting him away from the path that he has already set out on towards Jerusalem, towards crucifixion and death and resurrection. Satan appears at this point, and it's just the two of them in the desert, and basically he's just attempting to knock him off the course to the cross. He's tempting him to use his powers for his own gain. He's tempting him to display his his power to all these people and therefore sort of take the cross off the table because he would reveal himself to be God. All of these things that Satan is working to do, working to oppose Jesus and the plan that Jesus comes to earth with to break the curse of sin, defeat Satan at the cross. So Satan is working all of that during these these temptations. And at the end of that section, it says, he, Satan, departed from him until an opportune time, which is a cool thing for Luke to throw in there because you don't hear a lot from Satan the rest of the way. But Luke is saying, well, Satan left Jesus at that point, but he's not gone. He will be back. He's waiting for an opportune time to approach Jesus again. And there are other places that we see Satan doing his work. Satan is following Jesus. You have this whole giant group of people, but secretly along the way, Satan is following Jesus too. And Satan is attempting to work his own plan over and against the plan of God. And there are a couple examples of that. And interestingly, they have to do with Peter. So here's one from Matthew 16. So starting in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. There's that word must again. And be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then Peter, again, the presumptive leader of the twelve, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That had to be pretty tough for Peter to hear, right? To be called Satan. But Jesus knows what's really going on here. It's not that Satan is possessing Peter, but Satan's, Satan's influence is in the air. He's influencing Peter, and Peter has this sense of like, no, 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 no. Jesus is not going to die, you guys. That is not, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And Jesus is like, did you forget when I said must? It must happen. And for you to oppose that is, is the voice of Satan speaking through you. There's another point. This is during the Last Supper. Jesus turns to Peter again. Peter was originally called Simon before Jesus started calling him Peter. And Jesus says this to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's like, I don't understand what any of that really means. And Peter says to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So again, this is really, really fantastic. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, I have something to tell you. Satan has approached me and says, I want Peter and I want him. I want him to be the one that betrays you, basically. I want to pull Peter away from the faith. And Jesus says, that's a no. And the reason being, Jesus himself says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The fact that Jesus is himself 
sustaining Peter's faith is the only reason Peter doesn't fall away. If Jesus does not do that, Peter's gone. And even so, he's allowing Peter this weakness because he, he says before Peter says anything else, he says, you're going to turn and you're going to turn back. And when you turn back, I want you to strengthen your brothers, which we're seeing in Acts. So Peter is going to turn. And then when Peter presses, Jesus is like, okay, you know what? It's tonight that you're going to turn. You're going to walk away tonight. Before the sun comes up and the rooster crows tomorrow morning because it's the middle of the night, before that happens, it's three times that you're going to deny me. But your faith will not fail because I am sustaining it, personally sustaining your faith. So just as a tidbit for, for Christians in the room, like your, your faith is being personally maintained by Jesus Christ right now. Personally maintained by Jesus Christ. Without him, we're nothing. He's maintaining your faith right now. But again, Satan is working. Satan is trying to oppose. He's trying to use the people that are close to Jesus to push him away from the cross and away from this, this plan of God. But here's what's really weird, because that's when Satan turns his plan and turns his attention to Judas. He changes his tactics and he uses someone who's a pretender amongst the disciples. He uses Judas who's pretending to be a follower this whole time. And instead of using Judas to push Jesus away from the cross, he's going to use Judas to push Jesus to the cross. We find out that Judas was living a double life. Early in the book of John, John points this out. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him, no spoiler tag on that, but it's, you know, he's going to betray him. Judas says, so this is a situation where there's this woman who has really expensive ointment and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John says, well, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but actually because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So as John is writing this, looking back, he's like, Turns out, Judas was stealing from us the whole time. And when he says something like this, he's pretending to care about the poor, but really he's like, it would be great if there were 300 more denarii in this bag that I could use. Satan knows this. Judas is the pretender among the group, the only one. And so when it says in Luke 22, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. The 12, Luke is making sure we know about 12, Judas, he went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them and they were glad and they agreed to give him money and he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd, which he ended up doing. So Judas is not innocent here. He loves money. He wants money. He's willing to give up his teacher that he's been with for three years in order to get some money. And once they get to Jerusalem, he goes to the chief priests and sees what he can get. And puts that plan into motion. But then we read later, Satan's influence over Judas, Satan pulls it back. He pulls the rug out from under Judas. He abandons his accomplice. He abandons him to regret and despair and suicide and all of the rest. This is Satan's plan. Does it even make sense? Does Satan's plan even make sense? It makes sense for him to, to try to get Jesus off the path to the cross because he knows the cross is where sin and death are defeated. Those are the weapons in his arsenal. He doesn't want that to happen. He wants to be able to wield the power of sin freely. But then he changes his tactics. He does a 180, and instead of pulling Jesus away from the cross, he says, well, I think I'm beaten. Jesus is going to the cross. Nothing is going to stop that. So instead of taking him away from the cross, He's going to push him to the cross and he's going to make it as horrible, humiliating, and painful as he can. Taking some semblance of control in Satan's mind away and forcing the issue, even though he knows that is going to cause his own ultimate defeat as well. Satan's plan is sin. That's the, the, the boiled down version of Satan's plan. His plan is sin. Irrational self-serving, self-harming, others-harming sin. It is for, for Satan himself, and it is for Judas as well. Sin makes, makes, you, makes an irrational decision. 
to do these things. That is what Satan is pushing into. He's saying, basically, by pushing Jesus to the cross, he himself is committing suicide. Judas can be a picture of that as well. It feels like the right decision at the time when we sin, and then when the time comes, that feeling is gone, and we see the reality and how horrible it is. Judas is a picture of us without Christ. Serving himself, hurting himself, falling into ruin and destruction when sin and Satan just pull back and let you fail, let you fall, let you see the depths to which our sin can hurt. That's Satan's plan. Always has been. But God has a plan. And God's plan is love. Love that is eternal, self-sacrificing, and others benefiting. That kind of love. And here's the great news for today. All other plans bow to God's plan. Including Satan's plan. All of those plans, their arrows get bent to God's plan. There's a great verse from Genesis 50. Joseph is saying this, and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's the essence of God's plan. We mean things for evil. Satan means things for evil. Judas means things for evil. And then Peter looks back and says, through all of that, the Scripture must be fulfilled. The Scripture was fulfilled. God's plan went on. Nothing derailed it. God was in control of everything. God had a perfect plan, and Satan's heinous acts of sin only served to advance that salvific victory for us. That irrational, foolish, suicidal, evil plan advanced the victory that would win us salvation. I mean, it's as stunning as it sounds, you guys, when we look at this and say, okay, so we're saying God orchestrated the betrayal and murder of his son, defying his enemy's attempts to stop that from happening, and even used his enemy's evil acts to win that victory, to prove that he was in charge all along, yeah, that was his plan. That is what he did. That is what he has done. Satan and God the Father are not equals. Satan and Jesus are not equals. When Satan and Jesus met in the wilderness, Jesus could have said, you know what? You're out of existence. You don't exist anymore. I'm sick of listening to you. He could have easily done that. That's all it takes in an interaction between Jesus and Satan. But instead... He says, no, I'm going to allow your operation to continue. Why? Because that's part of my plan. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. I'm allowing the operation to continue all the way to the cross because I know that is part of my plan. So I ask you, do you believe in a God that sovereign and that loving? It says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. God is sovereign over all things. And he's very, very loving towards us, his people. Do you believe in a Jesus who knew what would happen all along? and still chose to walk that path for you all the way to the cross. Injustice, humiliation, pain, torture, and death, he took it on willingly because he loved you and it was his plan all along. Do you believe in a Holy Spirit who reveals God's love to you and guides you through the plan of God? Works in your heart indwells you and reveals the will of God. It says in Romans 12 that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. And the Holy Spirit reveals that to us. A good and acceptable and perfect plan. So, as we finish, you might just be asking the question, what is God's plan? What's his plan for me? I want to know. 
And God's plan is that we would receive the gospel that was bought at a heavy price by Jesus at the cross. That we would receive that gospel because God wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. That was his plan. That is his plan. To purchase salvation for ruined sinners through the death of his son Jesus at the cross. We are those sinners. We are those sinners lying dead in pieces in a bloody field that people are shocked and reviled by. We are sinners like that. But Jesus comes to us. He has come to us. And he says to our broken and dead pieces in a field, I have purchased new life for you at an infinite cost to myself. And Jesus says, I want you to come and join my family because there's an empty chair and I have been saving it for you to sit in. He's chosen you from the beginning. It's always been his plan. So believe. Believe that gospel today and take part in that glorious family in that feast. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for setting your face to the cross and not shying away. Thank you for displaying your love for us. And God, thank you for making that your plan, your sovereign plan, that all other plans bow to you. And I pray that we would seek your will for our lives, that we would trust that you know what's best, and we would trust in your good, perfect will for our lives, that we would believe, that we would believe the gospel, and that we would be folded into your family into your church. Pray this in your name. Amen.